Welcome, Truth Seekers, to the Truth Seekers podcast, where we always seek for truth in every single way possible out there. Sorry about not posting anything for two weeks or so. I've been a little busy traveling and stuff, and I'm back in Honduras, back in my hometown, so we're going to get some new podcasts out there. I'll have some special guests on, and these are two of them. One is Zach Yates, which I've had on, and my dad, Ronnie Gill, which I've had on as well. And I hope you guys like it. Okay, so we were going to start talking about Revelations, and we're going to start going through the chapters of 11 through 13. In the end, what my hope is that we can figure out what the Mark of the Beast is, because a lot of people have different opinions on what the Mark of the Beast is, and some people say it's the vaccine. If you actually read through the scriptures, you can actually figure out which it actually is. So, that's part of it, but I think we need to start going into first understanding the scriptures and where they come from because King James Version is actually translated in an interesting way. It was translated from, I don't remember, 1530? I don't know if that's year right. That year is right. But then they've had all these different versions of it come out. Also, I think 92% of the New Testament of the King James Version is copied from one of the previous guys that copied it all by himself, translated all by himself, that was killed at, at the stake by the Catholics because they didn't want the English version to go out. Well, so, for a long time, it was actually prohibited to lay, read the Bible mm-hmm. for the lay person. It was, and also it was in Latin, so only the monks and those higher up can actually read it. Mm-hmm. You had to be specially educated. It wasn't for the common masses. Right. From, from what we look at right now, uh, what we have available to us, we have about 5,000 complete or fragmented pieces of Greek manuscripts. We have 10,000 pieces or fragments of Latin manuscripts and over 9,000 pieces, uh, either complete or fragment, of uh, various other manuscripts and assorted languages, including Syriac, Slavic, Gothic, Ethiopic, Coptic, and Armenian. So you think about that, that's a lot of different languages uh, that we're compiling and bringing all together to get out of it what we call today the Bible. For the New Testament, that's just the New Testament. So are all, like the New Testament translated from all of those languages into the New Testament, or what do you mean? Well, what we have is we've got a multitude... Essentially, if you think back, you know, I think a little bit of, uh, you know, the poorest country you can imagine today. They don't have printers. They don't have computers. They don't have copy machines. Uh, Your neighbor has half a page of the Bible. You'd like to have a copy of it. Well, you're going to have to copy it by hand. That's what happens. And so you have these copies that went out starting all the way back into Jerusalem where the apostles were. And essentially, you had anything from... You know, a passage, a chapter, a book, all the way up to a, and eventually uh, an entire Bible copied by hand. And through the time, through time, some of these pieces have stuck around. Some of them, of course, if you think about a piece of paper, uh, even the ones that came out of the caves there in the Middle East just recently, the Qumran scrolls, or however they say that. You know, some of these pieces of paper look like you know ancient treasure maps so to speak there's corners eaten out or rotted out and uh, 
you know, half the text is missing. And so in this piece of paper, they're trying to pull out just what they can get off of it. And so as you had people traveling out from Jerusalem, you had them translating from uh, in Jerusalem where they were speaking probably more Greek and Armenian, uh, Armenian, I think, not Armenian. Um, I forget the other language right now. Uh, but you had the different language that they were speaking there in Jerusalem, Greek being one of the ma uh, main ones, coming out and slowly then being translated into whatever a person's native language was. And so, you know, maybe some of your family went to Jerusalem uh, for the Passover or whatever, and you got, during that time, a testimony from something Paul said, and you took it home and you translated it into your own language to share with your people. And so now you have all these fragments that have uh, resisted decay and came to us in our time period. And so uh, some of these, we have complete works. It's the complete New Testament together in Greek. Uh, or the complete New Testament in one of these other languages, like Latin. <clears throat> and so then when you take like the King James Version... It's taken from a certain one of these Greek texts that was complete. And essentially now you have translators, what they're doing is they're looking at all of these fragments and trying to understand whether or not what we have in any of the complete texts is actually perfect. Which is actually interesting because I know that when we take notes in the studies and stuff, we sometimes write the scriptures down and write our own opinion on the scripture which will, if they were doing that back then it would be kind of interesting because it would have their own opinion in that verse as well you have to keep in mind as well when you're talking about prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls we had very little material to say double check we didn't have things during that century because of the purging period where they did wipe out so much but with the monks specifically they had a very strict process of writing. It was scrutinized. If there was even a hint of something that was off from the original, whatever they deemed original, it was destroyed, and they had to start over again. So, I mean, their process, though it was by man, and there is faults in it, they tried to perfect it pretty good. So, I mean, just like you see in a lot of religions today, it was a religious practice. Yeah. There wasn't a gray middle line. There was right and wrong. So for them, that's how they wrote it down. It's very interesting when you look into how they came about in writing it. Although even though they had that meticulousness about that, that religiousness about it, uh, it doesn't take long before things slip in. And just in the Greek texts that we have alone, uh, 5,000 some different fragments or you know, complete pieces of the New Testament, there are over 400,000 minor errors. Mm -hmm. And a minor error might be, you know, they missed a letter in a word, a misspelling. Or, you know, sometimes, depending on the language that you're working with, uh, you know, like even comparing English and Spanish, a lot of times the adjectives are reversed. And so in English, we might say the red ball. In Spanish, they would say the ball red. R-E-D, not as in reading. Um, and so the adjectives are in reverse order. And so sometimes the translators, when they were translating, accidentally left them in reverse order. 
And so you have a lot of minor uh, mistakes like that. But you also have in those 4,000, which I think, I think they guessed today about 90% of the 400,000 errors are just simple misspellings, a missing of a letter or something. But there is a few in all of that that actually come down to what appears to be intentional errors. Like uh, Monk changing it for his own beliefs or? Well, you know, not knowing the people and not knowing the hearts of those that were doing the translating, you know, there's no way to ever really judge that per se. All we can look at it is look at the reality before us and say, okay, we've got, you know, 5,000 fragments, 3,000 of those fragments in, you know, you know John 3.16, for instance, say this, 2,000 of these fragments say something a little bit different. And, and this is what it's all about, you know, even when you get down into like police work and investigative work, we're looking for a multitude of witnesses that say the same thing. And so that's what all the fragments are about, It's putting all of those together so that we can begin to understand better what the disciples, hopefully, really intended to say. And that could be anything from a bias on the individual writing it to a high order political party who wants to push a certain doctrine onto the people, but do it in a shrewd way. Mm -hmm. Because the Bible is one of the most powerful things that has come about in the written word. Regardless of how you feel about the lividity of Christ and these other things, we in this group believe in Christ and believe yeah. that he came here and he is the Lord. But it has had an effect that no nuclear weapon could ever have had. Mm -hmm. It's had a history. huge effect. Oh, yeah. It's had a, few, had a huge effect on the language and how we speak the language even. There's quotes inside the Bible that people use nowadays for the norm, but are out of context because they were just so profound, and people put them into their own lives without even realizing it. Now, it's it's probably important just to note that you know a lot of people would consider the King James version probably the most valid uh, version of the Bible out there, and I don't want to discredit the King James or anything. It, it is a really good. Uh, work, you know, if you look into how the translators did it, uh, they did an exceptional job in translating it. But even in it, there are some small discrepancies, small difficulties, small things that tend to pop up. And of course, if you only have the text, you know, if you were a person that only had a Bible in front of you, uh, there are things that you might miss. And, of course, an example of that is just one that uh, we were looking at just the other day, which is the word deacon. And, of course, if you look up now, you know, you've got a dictionary, a Bible dictionary, say the Strong's Greek-Hebrew Dictionary. You look up the word deacon, you'll find that basically there's two passages with about five uses of the word deacon in those two passages. One is in Timothy and one's in Philippians. But now if you look up the Greek number in the Strong's for the word deacon and then do a search on that Greek number, you'll find that in the New Testament there's over 30 uses of that same word deacon. Where it does not say deacon, it has a different translation. Now, obviously we can't assume why there's a difference in, in the word there, but you know, I would, I would look at it as a challenge to a person, read through just the, the two passages that use the word deacon as deacon, and ask yourself, what do you think the word deacon means? What's implied in the text? Because this is one of the important things that came out when they begin 
uh, making dictionaries, okay? In order to understand what a word means, what they would literally do is go into a library full of, you know, the most prominent works, and they would take a specific word, look for it in all these prominent works, and then pull out the understanding of the word. And so, if we wanted to understand, for instance, what the word deacon means, we go into the Bible and look at how it's used. What is it? How is it used in the text? Uh, and what framework is it used? And so read the two passages in Timothy and, and, and Philippians where it uses the word, and then go and find the other passages where actually in the Greek it's used. Now think about all of those passages. Did your idea of what the word deacon means change? Or do you still think of it the same? Now, the word deacon is just one word. How many more of those could be in the text? And that's not to say that any one of those passages has an intentional error in it or something that might change doctrine. But if, if you were a, a, a group, a church perhaps, that believed that the word deacon meant something very specific, like it was a specific calling, uh, reading the rest of those passages may influence the way you see that word. And this is part of the difficulty that exists in translating. Of course, when they were doing the King James, they had a panel of people that were revising each piece that was translating, which is very important because it's good to have witnesses. But, you know, if you translate something, you know, you, we know that we're human. And on any given day, sometimes we got more energy, more wits about us, and another day, maybe we're just tired and our brain's not working well. It might be fuzzy. And so we're always hoping that people are checking up on each other when you're doing a translation. But there's always the possibility that errors slip in. You know, I decide to translate a text, you know, as one word. The next guy looks at it and says, yeah, that's close enough. And it just goes around the whole group. And a change has happened. And, you know, as long as we're all good faith players... You know, you hope that it always turns out the best it can with the intention of the passages coming through appropriately. It's interesting also that the King James Version, they went through and had 15 tests to even go through that. To, for a scripture to pass, it had to go through 15 tests, mm -hmm. which that means the King James Version is actually one of the best versions. It just has a lot of errors. Mm -hmm. Well, I wouldn't say it has a lot of errors. There are a few things that creep through. And that's why, it, you know, in my own opinion, it's always good to have a dictionary close by, something like the Strong's Greek Hebrew, where you can look at, especially when you're talking about difficult texts like prophecy and stuff like that. It's always good just to make sure you're really understanding things how they are. Sometimes when we look at prophecy, we look at it and we scratch our head. We have no clue what this is even trying to say. But that might be because we're not understanding the words sometimes. The other thing that it's always, uh, to me, I find really helpful is I have an interlinear Bible that literally has your Greek and your Hebrew along with the translation right there on the page. And it doesn't always perfectly help, but it does help sometimes get into things. One of the interesting things that has actually been really hotly debated since translations have begun in the Bible is a passage in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 19. And it's an interesting passage. I don't want to get into the doctrinal side of it per se, but when you read the passage, there's one verse, verse 19, and it's the first few verses that are actually debated. 
Uh, a lot of time it's debated for what it means, but there's actually one translation that flips it on its head, so to speak, and gives you a different perspective altogether. In the King James, when you read the beginning of verse 19, it says, by which also he went. The he, based on the text, implies Christ. If you go to uh, the James uh, Moffat translation, same verse says it was in the spirit that Enoch also went, not he. Well, now you have a complete change of idea in the passage. Uh, why Moffat put in Enoch instead of he? Well, only Moffat knows that, and he's dead. But, you know, we can surmise why. Uh, there, but the reality of it is, there are these distinctions in translations. Sometimes it has to do with other works uh, that might exist in a society that are influencing a person's thoughts. But the important thing is to be able to really get into and understand what the text is saying in its original language. When we look at the Hebrew side of it, of course, we also have uh, similar problems uh, as we do with the Greek. There are, again, a couple, I don't remember exact number of it, but there's a couple thousand different uh, complete texts or fragments of texts. I don't remember how many specifically. But one of the things that they did do in the older versions of the Hebrew texts, the scholars omitted all the vowels. And so your, your oldest Hebrews, uh, Old Testament texts, don't have the vowels in them, which for the scholars in that time, it wasn't a problem. But now you come up today where so much has changed. If you take one of these passages that is missing all the vowels and just misprint one other letter, how much can you change? I mean, you're already missing the vowels. And so the potential for error is big. Uh, in the latter years, a lot of the, the Hebrew scholars have begun reinserting all the vowels into those texts. But these things are really important when we get into prophecy like the prophecy of Revelations because it can really make the difference whether we're understanding or not. One of the other things that always comes up, you know, when you're thinking about translating is the human element of it. And, of course, you know, being, uh, having been born in the United States with English as a first language, moving to Honduras, being over 20 years in Honduras and having to le learn Spanish, and then on top of learning Spanish, learning how to translate live is a challenge. Uh, one of the benefits, I would say, that we have in translating live, though, is the facial human element because there's so much that we know about a person and what they're saying through the expressions on their face. You know, when someone says some, something, are they angry? Are they sad? Are they whispering? Are they shouting? Uh, so much comes through in the physical element of something. And so when it comes down to translating, that gives us a leg up in being able to translate appropriately what someone's saying. I mean, it's a challenge no, no matter what to translate uh, something from one language to another and there are certain things like idioms and things like that that just don't translate ever and if you do a literal translation no one will ever get it uh, what comes out the other side will be so confusing everyone will be scratching their head <laughs> but when you have the facial expressions and the human element of it you add a level um, of ease to the translating 
when we go back to these ancient texts that were written, you know, some of them a thousand, two thousand years ago, the human element's gone. All we have is ink on paper. Uh, so the character in this, and, and you know, this is this is true whether you're in fiction or whether you're talking about the scriptures as text. You know, unless someone writes in the text, he said this in an angry tone, or he whispered this, or he was happy when he replied. You don't really know how things are happening. And of course, when it comes to translating, that can mean a lot in foreign languages, because the way in which you say something, uh, there are certain phrases that all of it depends on the tone as to what it means. And so the exact same phrase with one tone, exact same phrase with another tone, changes the meaning. And that's important to think about because when you're looking at these ancient texts, you don't get any of that. It just comes through the words, the ink on the page. And so what you really have almost is a dead text with no life in it. Because the human, the, the spiritual side is not present. The other aspect that really makes things difficult, and of course we've talked about this a little bit, is, is the whole act of actually copying. And, you know, I would, I would challenge a person just to take any given book off of their shelf and attempt to copy the whole thing without one error. <laughs> In the same language. In the same language, yeah. Uh, not even talking about translating it to another uh, language. And, you know, when we're looking at those 5,000 Greek texts where there's 400,000 variations, that boils down to about 70 per document. And that's an inter interesting thing to think about. Now, obviously, if it's a difference between the word there and there and how you spelled it, <laughs> uh, a lot of times the, the paragraph itself will tell you which version of the there was the appropriate one. But that doesn't always come through with all words. And that's where it's important sometimes that even a simple spelling mistake can actually change the way we look or understand a passage. And even just looking at the difference in the language back in the 1500s when it was translated to nowadays how the language has changed is incredible. It's changed so much that you can barely even understand how much it's changed. Even nowadays, 50 years ago, you wouldn't use slang words like people use today. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't so, understand them. So it's decayed. It's, it is decayed. Maybe decayed or maybe got better. I don't know that I would only say decayed. You know, I would say, I would recommend a person go out and find a digital copy of some of the very first English versions of the Bible. And give it a whirl to read them. I've got a sneaky feeling most people can't even read it today. Because the way which words were spelled then was even so distinct from today. Because dictionaries were not a big thing yet. They were just <laughs> coming into play. And so there wasn't necessarily one way to write a word, you know. And so you had, uh, you had a lot of words that were written from one book to another book, same words spelled different. And you get back to some of the very original translations of the Bible, and my goodness, it's almost impossible today to read them. <clears throat> but again, everything we're talking about at this point is in the realm of good faith players. Yeah, uh, people who are trying to do their best, people who are attempting to to copy as perfect as they can uh, the gospel and bring it to the next generation. 
what happens when you throw in a bad faith player? Someone who has malicious intent. They can just struggle with translations and destroy the whole bi text by itself. You destroy the whole meaning of it. There's a really good passage, and I have it quoted here in 1 Nephi chapter 3, verses 165 through 167. And I've got two different passages here that I really like in this uh, respect. Uh, 1 Nephi chapter 3, 165 to 175, and it says, And the angel of the Lord said unto me, Thou hast beheld that the book, which here is talking about the Bible, proceedeth forth from the mouth of a Jew, and when it proceeded forth from the mouth of the Jew, it contained the fullness of the gospel of the Lord, of whom the twelve apostles bear record. And they bear record according to the truth which is in the Lamb of God. Wherefore, these things go forth from the Jews in purity. So when it originally was written, it came forth in, the, in whatever God considers uh, the purest form. But that was the beginning unto the Gentiles according to the truth which is in God. And after that they go forth by the hand of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, from the Jews to the Gentiles. Behold, after this thou seest the formation of that great and abominable church, which is the most abominable above all other churches. For behold, they have taken away from the gospel of the Lamb many parts which are plain and most precious. And so in the process, if we're looking at this as a historical timeline, which, you know, as we get into the purpose for talking about translating is because we're going to get into talking about Revelations chapter 11 and then 12 and 13 uh, eventually. But this is talking about a period of time when the church is beginning in Jerusalem. Paul, John, Peter, whoever, they're all there. The church is rising up, growing, gaining members. The first letters are written from the different disciples, uh, Jude, Peter, John the Beloved. The, their letters are going out. They're being copied from one to the next. Now you have this procedure where all of a sudden you have this institution rises up with malicious intent. He calls it an abominable church, and he says they have taken away from the gospel. Verse 169, And also many covenants of the Lord have they taken away. And all this they have done that they might pervert the right way of the Lord, that they might blind the eyes and harden the hearts of the children of men. Wherefore thou seest that after the book hath gone forth from the hands of the great and abominable church, that there are many plain and most precious things taken away from the book, which is the book of the Lamb of God. And after that these plain and precious things were taken away, it goeth forth unto the nation of the Gentiles. And after it goeth forth unto the nation of the Gentiles, yea, even across the many waters which thou hast seen with the Gentiles, which have gone forth out of cap captivity, and thou seest because of the many plain and precious things which have been taken out of the book, which were plain unto the understanding of the children of men, according to the plainness which is in the Lamb of God, because of these things which were taken out, away out of the gospel of the Lamb, and exceeding great many stumble, yea, insomuch that Satan hath great power over them. And so as we're seeing all of these things take place, which you know is bringing us really into the period of time that I look at as Revelations 11, 12, and 13, the rise of this power, uh, and that will be in these chapters, uh, and the intent of this power is to change and take away the plain and precious things. To take the spirit right out of the text, so to speak. And so now you have translators involved with 
malicious intent. What do you guys think this great abominable <clears throat> church is? I don't know that I would necessarily put a name to it, per se. Not because I don't think that there's a name you could put to it, but I say that because I think that anyone, any group, that is working to change the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes part of it. Would, would you say it was kind of similar to, it's like saying, okay, Satan, Satan's bad. But underneath Satan, you have demons. Mm -hmm. And they all work to that goal. So, I mean, you've said before about the mark of the beast. You say the great and abominable church. I'm like, okay, fine. But when you're looking at that, it's not just one thing. It's you have to define what is untruth. Like the, the abominable church would be something that would be complete opposite from what the church would be. You're wanting good. You're wanting people to go to heaven. You want people to live good lives, right? The other one would be let's change that slightly so people have conflict, have misery, and they don't have fulfillment of life. That would be what you would say would be the opposite. Mm -hmm. In history, we can see that did start with the Roman Catholic Church mm -hmm. when Rome fell, and then popes started coming up and then getting that almost power beyond what Rome mm -hmm. as a nation had. Would you say that was pretty pretty close? Absolutely. To that? Now, I would say that the, the rising up of that actually happens a little bit earlier than even the Roman Catholic Church coming in. And I've got another passage here I'd like to read, but before I read it, I just want to, you know, insert in here to a degree, you know, as we're talking about this and we're talking about the change and really now we're going to be, we're going to be looking at two powers. One is the people of God, the righteous. One is this abominable church the non-righteous and abominable not not because they go to a church with a certain name on it per se but they it, it's what their intent is it's all about intent and so you know there there's when we make things as humans we like to we like to classify them so to speak you know nike makes shoes it says made by nike you know ford makes a, a truck that the ford symbols on there we like to have people know whose this is. And so when we start looking at these two powers, what we're beginning to look at is not necessarily a seal, but an intent, okay? What is this group's intent, as Zach was mentioning? What do they want to achieve? What do they want to accomplish? Because interesting enough, while a lot of people really focus and get into uh, the whole discussion of the mark of the beast, People tend to forget entirely the same book of Revelations talks about that all the righteous were also sealed. And, and they don't even bring that up. You know, no one asks, hey, you got the seal on your forehead for going to heaven? Uh, we don't even think about that. And, and I would say, typically speaking, probably if you ask the average believer, what is the seal that seals or marks the believers, the true believers, they wouldn't even think twice about, well, it's because he got a certain vaccine. That makes him a believer. And, but yet when we flip it over to the other side and looking at the mark of the beast, now we try to nail it down to some physical thing. And I think that's interesting because I think both of them come back to a very similar root, which is intent. What is your purpose? What are you trying to do? And this brings us to the other passage I have, which is in Acts. And this is written by Paul. This is Paul's own witness while he was alive. 
And this is Acts chapter 20, verse 28 through 31, and it says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which, hath, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, after my departing, and when it says departing here, he's really talking about his death. So, you have Paul's period of time when he's preaching, and he's working tirelessly to keep the gospel stable, to keep the translation pure, so to speak. Okay, and he says, After my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. So this is still well before the Catholic Church period really begins and gets rolling. And he says, verse 30, Also of your own selves. And so part of this problem doesn't have anything to do with another group of people coming in and trying to usurp authority over the Church of Christ so to speak. This is coming out of the church itself. These are people in the church. It says, of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things. And this is the intent. Now you have this maliciousness. They're in the church and the words that are coming out of their mouth are not correct. Whatever that means, they're changing things. It says, speaking perverse things with a purpose. To draw away disciples after them. They want to start their own group with their own philosophy, with their own, you know, ideology, so to speak. Verse 31, therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And so this passage, and of course the one from Nephi gives us this understanding, it, it indicates there absolutely was malicious bad faith players coming into the story right around Paul's time. Uh, and of course when he talks in another passage uh, uh, about, um, it's in Thessalonians, uh, he talks about this person rising up, this antichrist rising up. And he talks about the power, and it says it's already in action. The mystery of iniquity says it's already in action. And so even in Paul's time, while he's living, this is already beginning, but it really begins to take root and grow when Paul dies. And so you have this change. Well, a lot of our texts that we have, whether it's the, the King James Version or whichever other version you'd like to take, the 5,000 plus plus texts that we have start at the first century and go up to the 15th century. That's our period of time that we have all these texts from. So the very time when Paul's saying, I'm going to die, but now there's going to be some changes happening amongst you and you yourself, the people in the church are going to be doing this, is where our texts begin. And that's the trouble we have. You know, we think about some of those changes some of them may have just been typographical errors, so to speak, but we now know, according to Paul himself, maliciousness was at foot. Which is interesting as well, if you think about our church and where we stand now, we, our beliefs in the church are kind of bad in the way that some of our beliefs are wrong. And we started believing things that they changed back then after Paul died and they changed the, the people back then changed them and now we believe those beliefs because they changed them 
it's really hard too when you think about it because there's a lot of things in our church that you could say, okay, this is a this is a problem for this reason. It could be almost anything that we do um, in our church. But if you think about it, it's so hard to take some of those things out because, for instance, I may have been raised, my dad was raised, my granddad was raised, my great-great-granddad was raised with this mindset or thought. And we never thought to really question it. So then it comes to the point of you need the, ma the majority of the people to come together with unbiased view, being humble and not wanting to attack each other, but being able to look at it truly and being able to justify whatever it is through scripture that we all believe in and then going through it in that sense but me saying that boy that's super simple isn't it yeah i think we can do that this year <laughs> you know but that's that doesn't happen very easily and i think that's probably why god intervenes so much yeah. in it because the human element is so hard to go through you have anyone from super you know even with the the united states right now you have the super hard left to the super hard right and they're both right and the other is completely wrong. Mm -hmm. You're going to have that to some degree or another. And it's really hard to get past that hurdle for people. It is. And, of course, that's one of the reasons why it's important for us to have the basic qualities of Christ, mercy, forgiveness, uh, charity, because it gives us the ability to look beyond just a person's ideas mm -hmm. and philosophies and love them still as a fellow member of the Church of Christ. But, you know, when we're talking about all these difficulties in translating, this actually brings us into our text and the importance of prophecy. Because in my perspective, as, I, as, as a prophetical student, as, a, as someone who loves to study prophecy, one of the things that really stands out for me is that so much of prophecy is written in symbolic imagery. And to me... I think God, who had a foreknowledge of all this that was going to be happening, uh, gave these prophecies this way for a purpose, knowing there would be malicious actors, knowing there was people who might want to change a word here and there uh, that might change entirely a passage or its understanding. I think he gave the prophets these, these images that they may not have even totally understood. But they were images in such a way that it's hard to maliciously change it. It's hard to change a word here or change a thought there because it's just, a, it's just an image, so to speak. And if you don't understand the image, well, how do you know how to change it? And so you might, you know, given this symbolic image, you know, I think about Daniel and his image of the different beasts that he saw. Well, how do you tweak that to make it say something different? It's pretty difficult. Especially when you start going back historically and find that the very nations that were represented in, in his vision use the symbology that Daniel is talking about. Whether it was the bear, whether it was the lion, whether it was the eagle with wings, whether whatever it was, this imagery came through historically despite anything Daniel did. And this is important because now when we get into Revelations, uh, in our text, especially in, in, in chapter 11, one of the things that to me is the most important is not to get into it necessarily with the idea of focusing on individual words. Not that that's not important, especially when we're looking at the original context, but that we can just read it and let the image form in our mind, like a painter painting a painting. 
and reflect on the image. So, you know, I would recommend people read, for instance, chapter 11 a couple times and then just let the image that they're getting from the text come across without focusing just on the particular words in there because there's a picture being painted here and that's what prophetic symbolic imagery is for. When we get this image, then it actually gives us the ability to go back into the scripture and fill in some of the errors that are there and correct them. Even in just not even talking about prophecy any longer, if you take your normal conversation with someone and take out a few words and try to figure out what he's trying to say with taking a few words out of the sentence that he said, you're not going to understand what he's saying. you got to take the whole sentence or paragraph and figure out what he's saying in that context, mm -hmm. which is a problem with our social media nowadays because you can jump in and just cut a little snippets out of people's videos like they did with Joe Rogan and just ruin them with taking all little snippets that don't even matter. Taking it out of context. Taking it out of context. Mm -hmm. And then you can do that easily with the scripture. Mm -hmm. And you got to stop doing that and take the whole picture, understand what that means. And you got to understand the small snippets as well because if you don't understand the small snippets, you won't even understand what I'm saying right now because you won't even understand my words. We all have this basic understanding of language so you can go through and paint your own picture. Mm -hmm. My granddad's favorite example of that in the scriptures would be uh, I am the Lord and I change. <laughs> but the scripture says, I am the Lord and I change not. And the reason he'd say it is people like to drop off. It's just one word, not. And you just drop it off, it completely changes everything. That changes everything. It, it makes opposite. And so it's kind of interesting you say that. So a question for you on the prophecy part. It, it's really brilliant that the Lord did it in the way he did. Is that easier to be able to translate to another language because it's not you're not trying to translate some words in conversation you're actually change you're translating into another picture which pictures can be understood by any language mm -hmm. because as a painting you look at it and you have to determine the meaning of that that's of right that painting so you think that is a more um ingenious thing that the Lord did oh absolutely in here in the I prophecy. think I think it was like I said with a foreknowledge of everything that was going to happen so he gives us these these you know famous paintings so to speak to put it in another term and and says just think about the image and the understanding will come to you so to speak mm -hmm. and yeah I think that you know if, if you paint a picture it's you don't have to translate much You know, thinking about your statement about the, what your grandfather said, it just brought back to my memory the fact that there is actually a Bible out there called the Sinner's Bible. And <laughs> it was a translation error in the Ten Commandments. Uh, the translation came out and it was actually went to print and published, I don't remember how many thousand copies, but in the Ten Commandments it said, Thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> And it went out. It was the Sinner's Bible. A lot of people made funny, fun of it. But imagine a society where that was the only Bible you got. And we all read it and said, wow, that's kind of weird. I didn't think God was in favor of adultery. But here it says, thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> you know, if that was the only text that you had to work from, you could really mess up people up. And that, that, to me, is an excellent example of why we have to be really careful 
when we want to make a doctrine out of one word. You know, we got one text in the whole Bible, just one little passage with one little word in it that's different, and because of this, I'm going to form a little doctrine on it. We can't do that. And that, of course, brings us back to the, the prophetic imagery. It doesn't allow you to do that because it's an image. It's a painting. It's a picture. It's not, you know, thou shalt not, so to speak. So when we come into Revelation chapter 11, and I think that's important in all of what we've been talking about, because it's all kinds of the same period of time, you have the rise up of the, the Roman Empire. At the same time, we're talking about these translation difficulties. Just like Paul said, uh, there's changes coming in the church. There's changes coming in the text. You have things that are becoming distorted. And so in the beginning of chapter 11, we have God calling one of his angels and saying, go out and measure the temple. Take measurements of it. And so if you think about that, from the time Christ set up his church and it began to grow, there were, I don't really know how many years, but right around two to 300 years of probably pretty solid good growth. And so in comes the angel and measures it to see what it is. One of the purposes for measuring is not only to see if something has the right measurements. You know, we put a plum on the wall to see if it's plum. But the other purpose of measuring is to be able to judge if there's a change. And so, you know, you start at the bottom two foot of the wall putting the plum on. So that when you get six feet up, it's still plum and you can see it. If you don't put the plum on the bottom, sometimes you can miss what you need, you know, measurements. You know, you need to make something 11 foot long. Well, if you start out just shooting it by eye, eyeballing it, uh, you may get it wrong. You get the whole wall up and you decide to measure it, now you might find you're off by two foot or something. And so one of the purposes for measuring is to establish a measuring point. We have something now to compare to. And so that's what God's coming in. He's coming in and he's measuring and he's seeing how things are looking, both from this perspective, are they in a good position, and also to be able to measure how things go and proceed. And it's important because as Rome's rising up as a power, of course we know in the time of Nero and all the emperors around there, they begin persecuting, persecuting the church. They begin setting up their own temples with their own idols, and at some point in there, they would call in the Christians sometimes, and you know, demand that they kneel to the, the false statues. And if they didn't, they would throw them in the Colosseum with wild animals and watch them get tore up. And so this is the period of time of history that I believe we're talking about uh, in this passage. And so, you know, God's prophet comes in, measures the church. And then, very important, God sends in two witnesses. And to me, witnesses are, again, important because... You know, when you think about a trial case, it's the witnesses that confirm or not the statement. You know, you come in and say, my neighbor, you know, he lied to me. Well, the witnesses are either going to confirm it or they're going to say, no, that's not actually the truth. He didn't lie. And so witnesses are important things. And so two witnesses come in and that's important. And these two witnesses, it says, are dressed in the colors of mourning sackcloth which typically is a black or a dark color 
They're coming in and mourning. And I think that mourning is important because, again, as we see the church, you know, the first couple hundred years was growing and it was just a beautiful thing to see. As people came in, learned the gospel, learned what charity was, learned what salvation was, it was just a, a wonderful thing to see. But now, change is in the air. We should probably actually start reading if we're going to start getting into the revelations. We can read some of it if you want. We can read all of it if you want. Start off from the beginning, chapter one. <laughs> Ambitious, are we? <laughs> well, we're kind of starting in the middle of the book. Well, the only reason really to start in the middle of the book, and it's not that it's a bad spot or that we can't start here, but it's more than anything, you know, as we started in the very beginning, people have a lot of wild, fanciful ideas about what the mark of the beast might be. Mm, and yeah. the idea here is to try to bring some things into a little bit better perspective so that we can see what might it be and should we have fear of some such thing today. I mean, you know, the fact of the matter is the moment that we're, we're recording this, at this very moment on the other side of the world, we have Russia under Putin attacking the Ukraine, and there are people out there saying that Putin is the Antichrist. Okay, <laughs> You always have these people come out saying these things, and this is why it's important to get into the text and see the pictures and actually have, like this measuring rod, you have something to compare to. And then you can actually make a valid judgment, and that's important. We should just leave it here and just call Putin and Joe Biden the Antichrist. We're done. <laughs> Burn them at the stake. <laughs> okay, we should probably start off with verse 1. This is Revelations chapter 11, verse 1. And there was given me a reed, like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Arise, and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out, and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. And these, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before God of the earth. And so we get a number of important issues coming in here. Aside from the two witnesses, uh, we have a split here. They're supposed to, he's supposed to measure just the temple itself, not the outer area that's given to the Gentiles. And so we already have two different time periods brought in, in verse 2 and verse 3. One's 42 months, one's 1,260 days. And while both of these, I think, are probably really important and we could probably use to get really deep in this and start tracking down actually dates, but to me, the most important thing for these, these periods of time is to let us know three things. The first is everything's measured to God. He knows what's happening and he's in power. Number two, there's a beginning. And number three, which should give us a lot of hope, there's an end. And so whatever it is that we're going to be reading about here, whatever it is that's going to be happening, God's already measured its period of time. There's a beginning and there's an end. And so when we talk about an end, it's not like the end of the world, you know, dun, dun, dun. It's like this, whatever is happening here is going to have an end. And something new is going to happen after that. Likely, like the beginning of this, which I believe is happening and beginning in the time of Paul, 
it likely kind of rolled into it. It wasn't like someone could just walk up and see a clear-cut line, oh, here's the beginning, mm -hmm. uh, so to speak. While I think there's probably a beginning date and an ending date, and I think they're probably very precise, I think that more than anything, the events around these slowly came in and just the same slowly went out. And that to me is important. Now when it talks about these two witnesses, it's already defined it for us here in the text, so we don't even have to guess what these are because it's told us. It tells us in verse 4 that these two olive trees, these two witnesses, these two candlesticks, it's given us three things, and that's important because if we go back to, uh, to Revelations chapter 1, verse 20, in the very beginning of the book of Revelations, he tells us the candlesticks are the churches. So we have two candlesticks, we have two churches, we have two entities that are becoming witnesses for the world. And that's important to remember. We also know in Jacob, uh, in the Book of Mormon, chapter 3, starting at verse 30 all the way to uh, verse 153, we have a whole parable about olive trees. And these, while there's a bunch of olive, olive trees involved in the parable, really it boils down to two olive trees. The olive tree that is dependent on the house of Israel, and like it says here, the Gentile, the outer court, two olive trees, which are our principal things. And of course, if we're looking at these in very generic terms, we've got these two witnesses, and of course we have two witnesses today that are still witnessing to us through all of this, which is the Bible, the New Testament text, and of course the Book of Mormon as the, the other side of that. And oftentimes, uh, you know, in, in Ezekiel, when it talks about the two different roles, one of them being from the house of Judah, one of them being from the house of Joseph, the one from the house of Joseph would be in the hands of Ephraim, and it's often considered uh, also part of the Gentile movement. And so that's pretty important for us to think about because we have these two witnesses, and these witnesses will either confirm our righteousness or uh, reprove our sins, which is what we're talking about. And so two witnesses coming in during the Roman era, and of course we know historically in Rome and Nero's Roman and all that period of time, uh, there was a lot of evil going on. And I doubt we can say today that there's anything that we're doing that they weren't doing you know, as much, if not tenfold more. You know, we like to think that we live in the worst time in history, and there's some awful things going on. But the reality of it is, there were just as bad things happen then, including in their governments. Homosexuality, you name it, it was all there prevalent. And so you have these two witnesses coming out, and these witnesses are either reproving their sins or confirming their righteousness. And that's kind of what we're coming into in this text. You want to keep reading it? I can. Verse 5. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth, and the and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, they he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit 
shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their bodies and their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in the graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelleth, dwelt on the earth. All right. And so we've got a couple more things coming out in this text here that are kind of important that, that we kind of look at and comment on. Number one, these witnesses have the power to condemn and bring down judgment on man. And, of course, we know that that power only comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has always given that power to his prophets as he sees fit. And so we read the Old Testament. The prophets would, you know, call down a flood. The prophets would call down a time of uh, dryness where all the crops uh, uh, would dry up. And, and that was the power of God working through his people. And so these two witnesses, as the word of God, have that power. And we begin to see right around the, the turning point, two to three hundred years after Christ's coming, you begin to see the world start to go into what today we often term the Dark Ages. You begin to see this change. Uh, you begin to see almost like a reset. You know, you hear people talking about a reset today. They basically had something that looked like a reset. You had the Roman Empire and the Greek, Grecian empires, just empires with so much thinking going on, so much inventing going on, Roman highways that were very remarkable. You had the Greeks and the philosophers and all their texts. I mean, there was brain work going on like you can't imagine. You draw a line in the sand and it vanishes for a period of time. Not 100%, but throughout Europe and much of the wor world, you it, it looked like you didn't have a smart person left. It just changed everything. And I think that's important when we're looking at this text because, again, we're brought in a period of time. It says they're laying in the streets for three and a half days, but three and a half days is the same as time, times, and half a times, 42 months and 1,260 days. They're all the same thing said in a different terminology. And so it's kind of like looking at a 3D object, but you're just looking at it from a different angle, but you're seeing the same thing. And so these two witnesses are dead in the street. And in a sense, their spirit was taken out of them. They were still there, but their spirit was taken out of them. They were still witnesses. But the interesting thing comes in verse 10 when it says that because these two prophets tormented them that dwell in the earth, the actual Greek translation in this comes across a little bit different, basically the same thing, but comes across a little bit different. Basically, that torment was didn't allow them to sin openly like they wanted to. That's the idea. And so it's like, you know, thou shalt not commit murder, but we all want to go kill our neighbor. But yet here in the middle of town at the court is a great big stone that says thou shalt not kill. 
pointing a finger at me. <laughs> and, and this is kind of you know what the whole idea here is. These witnesses were constantly telling the people their sins, and no one was happy. So when these two uh, witnesses are laid out dead in the street, what are the people doing? Woohoo! They're rejoicing. They're yeah. sending gifts around to each other. They're happy. There's no longer spirit in this. And of course, if we if we remember what we've already covered in translating, we already uh, talked about the maliciousness and the potential to change the text. Religion didn't vanish in this period of time, but now religion changed. Religion wasn't about living a righteous life. Now you could be a drunk at the bar. Uh, Monday through Saturday, and a saint in the pews on Sunday. And it didn't matter. You know, you came in, uh, you know, one period in here, a little bit later on uh, in, in history, but just to get the idea here, there was a time period where you could basically come in and give the bishop a certain amount of money, and he would give you a token, and you were paying for your sins before you even committed them indulgences they were called and so you had this kind of idea that now we can sin and it's not a big deal you know I can come in and tell my local priest you know ah, I cheated on my wife again and he can tell me well okay you know kneel in the corner and say uh, three prayers and you're forgiven and but it doesn't make me have to change as a person and that's what we have happening in here People are looking at these two dead witnesses and saying, Hallelujah, now we're not held accountable for our sins. And that's the period of time that we're coming into here. Do you think their conscience actually died because of that? No. Think of it maybe as more of a, a willful ignorance or a willfully rebelling. They knew the truth, but they didn't want to know the truth. If you relate this in context to Matrix, there was a character in the first Matrix and he was taken out of the matrix, whether he chose to or not. He made a deal to get back into it because he's like, man, reality sucks. I want to go back and live the good life of ignorance. That's kind of what I'm getting from that vibe of this. Metaverse. Yeah. <laughs> we want to plug ourselves back into yeah. an artificial reality where we can do whatever we want. There are no rules, there are no laws, there's no governments that are going to come up and tell me that I'm doing something wrong. If I rape my neighbor in the metaverse, I don't go to prison. We can actually write our own rules and not even care about anything. There doesn't have to be rules. Pure chaos. Exactly. And, and that's really what a lot of people are even up till today, they're looking for. They're looking for this world. You know, to, to a lot of people, the utopian world that they want is not really a utopia. It's a world where you can do whatever you want. But of course, if everyone does what they want, they don't understand what a hell that would be. Because if I can rape anyone and pillage and kill and whatever, my neighbor can do the same thing. Yeah. And, and so eventually you're at a standoff because if I rape and pillage my neighbor, he rapes and pillage me, we're both living in absolute misery. And that's kind of what happened in the Dark Ages. You had all these little kingdoms, and that's what they did for fun. They would go in and rape and pillage, go home with all the riches of that country. They would have, you know, five years, ten years uh, of enjoying the riches they stole from their neighbor while their neighbor rebuilt and had a few more kids and came back and did it to them. And this was the cycle of misery that they lived in. 
but it's what they wanted until things begin to change and that's what's important and that's what all of this text is about uh, between Revelations 11 and uh, chapter 11 and chapter 13 we're seeing what was happening historically people were rejecting God and his word they were rejecting what he had put in this world both as a witness for all the good we do but also as a witness for all the bad you uh, mentioned earlier about basically paying for your sins. I think it's really important to note that there's there's actually two things that came to my mind. Earlier in this conversation, we talked about basically wolves. And the important thing is, is to realize you judge people not off of what they tell you. You judge them off actions. Mm -hmm. um, I was uh, a firefighter for three years. And one of the biggest things that I learned there was it didn't matter, especially in interviews, what people would say. It was when you watched them over a time period of sometimes years, you saw the person's intent and who they truly were because they can't hide it based off their actions. Mm -hmm. And the same thing goes with sin. If you want forgiveness, you have to show repentance, which means I have to show you by my actions, not by my words, mm -hmm. that I have changed. And that's very important to note when we're talking about some of these things in here, that there is a set way to do it and it's not based off of my pocketbook my Bitcoin account it's not it's based off of my actions do you want to continue then sure I might get to write this you're going to start at the opposite chapter <laughs> that's very confuses <laughs> chapter 11 and verse 11 and after three days and a half the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of the world are become the kingdoms of our Lord, and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks. O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, shall small and great should destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testimony, testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. So basically after a period of time where these two witnesses were just laying there, God calls to them, the Spirit of God returns to them, they stand on their feet and there's a great fear that comes into all the people. 
There's a fear because they understand that all along these things that they rejected are true. You can't deny them. And a voice comes from heaven and says, come up hither, and they ascend to heaven. And in a sense, what you have is this removal all of a sudden. And it's interesting as we read that because there's a wonderful passage in uh, the Book of Mormon uh, where it talks about uh, Mormons writing. And I think I have uh, the passage here in Mormon chapter, oh, there it is, chapter 1, verse 14. And of course, uh, he's talking about roughly 300 years, a little bit more after Jesus Christ's first coming. And in, in Mormon chapter 1, verse 14, he's got this quote. But wickedness did prevail upon the face of the whole land, insomuch that the Lord did take away his beloved disciples, and the work of miracles and of healing did cease because of the iniquity of the people. And so that almost sounds exactly what we just got done reading. Because as you're reading this, it talks about this earthquake. And usually when there's an earthquake involved prophetically, it's talking about a major change, a major upheaval. Something huge is happening. This is a change in time. And like I was mentioning, in a lot of the world during the Roman Empire time, in the Grecian times, there was a lot of really forward thinking. Uh, it wasn't too long ago they found out in the ocean, just I think it was off the coast of Greece, this machine that looks like a very advanced clock. And they've now been taking it apart and trying to rebuild it. And they think it's literally a, a model, you might say the first computer model, of the way in which some of the sun, the moon, and the planets move. But it's got gears and everything. I mean, this is advanced quality work all the way back then. From there, you have this cutoff point. And now you have, you know, everyone walking around with just, you know, swords and billy clubs, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, entirely backwards from where they had just been. And that's kind of played out in this idea of the earthquake with a lot of men dying. You have this major upheaval, this major change, and God's wrath is going to come out. He's pouring out his anger because what he gave his son, which died on the cross, for mankind... Uh, his word, his church. I mean, you think about uh, the time of the disciples and thereafter. Uh, anybody can get online and look up uh, the books uh, that talk about all of uh, the people who died during that period of time under the Roman Empire. Just marvelous testimonies of people. Um, the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Yeah, the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Yeah. Uh, but that's what we're talking about. God gave all this to mankind. And what did mankind do with it? Destroyed it. They didn't want it. And praised it when it was dead. And so that's what it's talking about there in Mormon. It's talking about God actually takes... What does it say here? He calls the two witnesses and they ascend up to heaven. He says all the disciples were taken off the earth. There were no more miracles. There were no more prophesying. All of it was gone. Just like that. So imagine a world where the Spirit's no longer there. All you have is the ink on the paper, so to speak. And, you know, when we get into chapter 12 and 13, we'll begin seeing how these things begin to play out. In a way, I imagine a, a world post-nuclear holocaust. Mm -hmm. 
And, and the reason I put it in that perspective is if you're doing that, you're not going to be doing the hard things. You're not going to be growing food. And you're definitely not going to be doing it because you want to do it. You're doing it for necessity, which means you're not going to get higher quality. You're not going to get these things. And that's just one aspect of it. You have so many things that are not enjoyable, really, to do, but they're necessary to do. And it takes willpower to do it. If you're wanting the easy way, which usually most of the time, that's exactly what it is. It's fast. It's easy. That's what you want. You start seeing a decline in all areas of economy, um, even families and, and mortality rates amongst children and people because it's a, what do they call it? It's a fight or flight. You're right. constantly in fight or flight. You don't live as long in that. It's proven. And so I see that and I think about desolation. And, of course, historically, if you go back to those periods of time and look at the average lifespan of people in certain areas, I mean, there were places where, you know, if they could get out 40 years, that was pretty awesome. I think about that in our terms today. I mean, I, you know, I, I can't even imagine Abraham, who you know, lived to be over 120, and then his ancestors before him, who some of them were hitting 400 and 800 and 900 years, okay? But... I just think about us today where to live the 70, 80 years old today is not a big deal in the terms of the Western world. But in the Dark Ages, there were places where if you lived to be 30, 40, 50 year old, I mean, that was extraordinary. Uh, and, and there's still places today that aren't much different from that. You know, I just re I remember the testimony of one of our missionaries that was in a specific spot over in Africa. And the people there asked his age, and they, they, they looked at him as though he was an ancient person, even though he was only about 50 years old. Because to them, 50 years old was ancient. Not many people surpassed that. And that's remarkable to think about. And so what that gives us to understand is when we have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God gives us so much more in life. Life we can live it more abundantly. But you take out the spirit, and you get the black plague. <laughs> yeah. I mean, essentially, that, that, that's what it wraps up to. Uh, and that's where it's so important for us to make sure that God's word, his spirit, and his people are never again removed from the earth. Because the removal of those things led to an apocalypse worse than nuclear apocalypse. You guys want to keep going through the chapters, or? Well, that's the end of chapter 11. We can do a different one. Uh, we can do another podcast later on, starting yeah. in chapter 12. And this is pretty heavy material. See where yeah, we, you, you, don't, you don't want to overdo it. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it's hard to concentrate. You might miss some important key stuff. I think it's probably a good spot. It's been an hour and 20 minutes already. Like, that's insane. I was like, this is going on for 20 minutes, and then I looked down, an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> I didn't see that one there. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. kind of interesting if I think about what you're talking about with nuclear holocaust. I think about it, and almost like, if I was a child, how would I think about it? Adam was designed and was given ownership of animals. He was to manage these things. So don't become, don't go to their level. And when you start seeing humanity at some of the most vile, they are, they are animals. Mm -hmm. Like, when the Lord destroyed the Nephites, they were eating each other. Mm -hmm. 
burning each other's I mean, that is stuff you see chickens do. Right. And so, you know, even at the very beginning, you're called to a higher calling than what's on this earth. That's right. And it's up to you to do it. No one else is going to do it. Because nothing else was designed to do it like that. You were given that responsibility. Yep. By God. And specifically, man. I'm not saying women don't have part in it, because they absolutely do. But specifically, men. Mm -hmm. we got to own up to what we are. Oh, absolutely. And unfortunately, a lot of people are not owning up to what they are today. In fact, they don't even want to be what they are. And that's a, a sad predicament that we find ourselves in, because we're choosing to be what we're not. Thinking that it's all fun and games, but the reality of it is we're changing the world and not for the better. And that's what history is for. That's, you know, like we just got done talking about the two witnesses. That's what the two witnesses are for, to tell us when we're getting out of line. And it's not just to tell us when we're getting out of line, so to speak, because, you know, sometimes we see a speed limit sign on the road. It's like, I don't want to drive that slow. But the idea is, especially on a corner... You've got a speed limit sign because over that speed can be dangerous on the corner. You slide off, roll your vehicle, kill your family. Well, you can't go back and undo it. And so the warning signs should be heeded. Uh, they should be taken into account. And, you know, I think about that right now in the world we live in because we live in an apocalyptical time right now with what's happening in the world. And I think so often we don't even have a, a true comprehension of everything that's happening. Uh, you know, when I look at politics across the, 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 the broader spectrum, it's so easy in this moment that we live in to say that, you know, the U.S. is the good player, so to speak, and Russia is the bad player. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's the case. And there's a whole lot more that we need to get into. You know, I think about the president, the, the current president in the U.S. putting open homosexuals, transsexuals into important offices that are very visual. And you have these men coming out dressed in drag who are top officials in the U.S. government. And I think, okay, is that what I'm supporting as good? That's not very good if you're supporting that. That's good. That's right. Lots of blurred lines. A lot of blurred lines. And it's real easy in all of these blurred lines to default on patriotism. What's patriotism? Patriotism <laughs> is when you stand for your country. You are a patriot. I will fight for my country, my flag, my beliefs. Well, you know, when your country and your beliefs are centered on God, that's wonderful. Because we want places that are free in this world. But when your country is promoting homosexuality to the world, when your country is the cause for homosexuality getting a foothold where it never had a foothold, and promoting it, then patriotism is not what you want to be. You Most know, countries are going downhill. Whatever country is supporting that which is wrong and evil is a problem. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what country it is. And it's where, you know, sometimes we have to stay, take a second look and say, okay, which countries are not supporting abortion? Which countries are not supporting homosexuality? Uh, you know, 
because sometimes those countries, while maybe they're not as free in some ways, maybe that lack of freedom has some benefit. And of course, when I think about your statement with, you know, it's wrong for patriotism on that, I would say that if you're looking at it, there are things that need to be wrong. But I, you have to be very careful with how you say some of these things because if you think about it, we're all imperfect individuals. Oh yeah, we, we should all be slain and killed. Honestly, you know, humanity. And I could even quote serial killers and people who go through and do that. You literally take that quote and don't tell people that they slaughtered an entire school full of people, and they would probably say, okay, yeah, I can kind of agree with that. Like, you know, we're pretty bad on the planet. We don't see that. But what you need to understand is you see the problems. Okay, now. What are your options to be able to make this imperfect thing just a little more perfect? And that comes down to you on an individual level. Because as far as what we can say in the United States, you have the votes, you have rights to vote, you have individuals. Do you do the due diligence to look up those people who are going to go into office? Try to do it. That should be patriotism. How am I bettering, not just protecting, bettering, my country and it starts with when you wake up every morning are you saying your prayers for your country are you saying prayers for your family do I go out in an attitude of all these people are stinking homosexuals and I don't like these people at all <laughs> or am I going out and saying do these people understand what they're doing do they know the history behind it do they know what kind of love that I can offer through Christ you know those are the thoughts that change things you have to realize too I think about this as well you could have said the same thing about Russia in, in the different the USSR and all these different mm -hmm. things. Yeah. What were some of the things that key players that took down some of those regimes that were honestly evil? Literature, books. It wasn't it wasn't patriotism, bullets, and muscle power and nuclear weapons. It wasn't that at all. It was literally word of mouth. It was truths that were coming out. So how do you take these truths that we know it's not right to abort children? not right at all how do you take that and you relay it to individuals in a way like prophecy that you can paint a picture and that I don't have to translate it for you that you can look at it and you can know this is this is truth this is what we're leading to and we can see where this direction goes we have history you know if you're not willing to do your due diligence and look into history I'm sorry you're gonna be doomed to repeat it yep. and unfortunately yeah. history is bloody and ugly and it is not perfect, and it does not care if you're a he, she, ex, whatever. It doesn't care. It's unbiased. Yep. But it does give you an idea of where we're going and what you can do to prepare for it. And unfortunately, fortunately, you only have the span of control of your arms and maybe your electronics. So in that span, what can you do to better yourself and thus better your country? The world you live in. Because the United States was founded on a home. Yeah, literally. A father, a mother, and children relationship. That was the cornerstone. Mm -hmm. And Christianity, which is what it preaches. So, I mean, we can talk for another four hours on some of this. As well. <laughs> you just got me down a hole. Good job. It's <laughs> a very good rabbit hole. Found some treasure at the end. Well, these are all things I had to consider whenever I was growing up. Did I want to go into the U.S. military? Why? What was my reasoning behind it? Did I have better points of view at that time period when I was 17, 18 years old? Probably not. Do I have understanding, better understanding now? Probably. I was a public servant. I had to really face, what am I doing to better my society? 
Am I really serving him for my purposes or for others? What do I do to better my country? It's not in a great shape. No. Is it better than what it used to be? Yeah, there's probably not as many lynchings anymore. Okay, there's one. But are we downfalling in other areas? Yeah, we are. So we need to step up, you know? But it's definitely a better nation than a lot of other nations. Like, North, I mean, North it's Korea. It's way better than North Korea. But you, you say that it. only because you've never been to North yeah. Korea. <laughs> okay, but what they say about North Korea isn't very good. But who are That's they? True. And what do they know? You know, it's, they it's, it. It, for instance, if you took a country that was against homosexuality and you asked a homosexual, what's it like to live in that country? He's going to tell you the sad side of the story. <laughs> uh, that is a miserable place to live. They yep. hate me. Mm -hmm. I can't live there. I can't survive there. Okay. And so you always have to ask, who are they who are saying that's a bad place? Now, it, it, it probably is a bad place. I'm not going to say North Korea isn't, per se. But what I'm saying is, I think it's important for us to do due diligence and find out the reality. You know, that's, that has a lot to do with what we just got done reading in Genesis 11. It was about those witnesses that are absolute true witnesses. Mm -hmm. And in today, that's what we we have a real lack of, a real deficit of real true witnesses. We have, you know, a lot of people saying one thing or the other thing. And sometimes we get polarized uh, in our own lives based on a group of people that we agree with or what sounds best. But that doesn't mean it's right. And that's where we really have to double check our, our information and make sure that we're being good witnesses. I mean, a lot of people would tell you that Iran's a horrible place to go, and maybe it is, but maybe it's not as quite what people think it is. Yeah, because someone that would want to abort a child here would say Honduras is a terrible place because it's anti-abortion. And it used to be. us that, we that are against abortion love it because it's anti-abortion. Mm -hmm. It's just based on opinion. I was, I was reading uh, a quote that I don't know if it was Martin Luther King had. It may have been someone else. But it was, uh, it, it relates to this in a, in a way. Uh, truth loves to be questioned. But a lie cannot stand to be questioned. It, it, that was the gist of it. I'd, I'd have to look up the right one. But I, I like that because if you think about some of these things, you're like, well, I don't really know much about it. There's not much going on about it. They just have this solid thing. I'm like, well, that should probably be a red flag. If you're seeing these countries who do not want you to go in and see, you know, I, mm -hmm. I think of um, factory farming and some of these other things. If I'm going from an animal standpoint and how these things are being treated, we're eating that. So it's probably good to see how they're being treated. Right. Um, they don't want you in there. Why? Like if it's if you're really being honest and true about what you're doing, you want people in there looking at what you're doing. Transparency. And if a nation is not wanting that, you have to ask the question. Why? That's all I would like to that, say. That's interesting. Yeah. I have spoken. It's a good ending point. <laughs> I've spoken. We have all spoken. That should be like the quote at the end of the podcast. We've spoken. We have spoken. <laughs> and so it is. And so <laughs> all right, guys. Keep going and seeking truth. And that's the end.